0: From the School of International Service at American University in Washington, this is Big World, where we talk about something in the world that really matters. Despite a widespread move toward democracy in the 1980s, democracy in Latin America may now be receding while authoritarianism and corruption are on the rise. And any discussion of Latin American politics must perhaps start with Brazil, the largest democracy in Latin America, the ninth largest economy in the world, and a member of the G20. So today, we're talking about Brazil, its politics, its corruption, and where it's headed. I'm Kay Summers, and I'm joined by Matthew Taylor. Matthew is a professor in the School of International Service. His research and teaching include state capacity, corruption, and Latin American political economy. He's lived and worked extensively in Brazil and was a member of the faculty at the University of Sao Paulo from 2006 to 2011. He's the author of Judging Policy, Courts and Policy Reform in Democratic Brazil. Matthew, thanks for joining Big World and welcome back. You've been gone for a while. What were you doing over the past year or so?
1: Indeed, I was uh, on sabbatical, got a lot of work done, a lot of research, and uh, I was in Brazil for a good portion of the sabbatical. So it was wonderful to be back in the country and get caught up on a lot of the troubles that the country has been through in the past half decade.
0: Okay, interesting. All right, so you're really fresh with uh, uh, on the ground insight. Uh, A 2018 report by the polling firm Latino Barometro revealed that every indicator about the health of democracy in Latin America is deteriorating, with many at their worst levels since this survey started in 1995. The percentage of people who are dissatisfied with how democracy works has jumped from 51% in 2009 to 71% last year. So I want to start with kind of a broad question, just really top-level What's the state of democracy in Brazil?
1: It's an excellent question, and and certainly things have taken a, a real nosedive over the past half decade uh, with basically three intertwined crises. So um, a political crisis that was associated with the impeachment of President Dilma Rousseff mm-hmm. uh, in 2016, as well as a corruption scandal. So there's that political element. The second element was, of course, caught up in this issue of corruption and and really the Uh, Massive is almost too small a word for it, but uh, the gargantuan uh, Mm lavajato or car car wash scandal. And then uh, beginning um, around the same time, an economic recession, which has been probably the worst in a century and um, continues to this day. The The country is emerging from the recession, technically, but um, growing very, very slowly, and certainly not, not strongly enough.
0: So let's dig into those last five years a little bit. And you mentioned the Lava Jato scandal, Operation Car Wash. It began in 2014. Can you tell us a little bit more about Operation Car Wash and what the investigation uncovered? What was the scandal about?
1: At the heart of Lava Jato is a a mix of a car wash and a gas station. And the really interesting thing to investigators was that this car wash somehow was moving hundreds of millions of dollars. An anti-money laundering uh, investigation showed just absurd amounts of money moving through this car wash. Mm -hmm. And um, they began to dig. The first person that they really hit um, pay dirt with was Paulo Roberto Costa, the Petrobras executive at the large state-owned oil company. Paulo Roberto Costa, who was a sort of second-tier executive within Petrobras, uh, in 105 different depositions, told the story of how he collaborated with construction firms on the one hand, and then also politicians within the governing coalition. Uh, to defraud Petrobras and to um, essentially uh, siphon money out of the company. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that there are two things that are really interesting about Car Wash that um, explain its its oversized effect. The first is um, he showed that the five major firms – working in tandem with smaller firms would essentially set prices before any bidding took place. So it was almost impossible for auditors to actually discover wrongdoing. Mm. And um, this was, I think, significant because there had been a lot of suspicion about corruption, but nobody had been able to prove it. And what was happening is these firms were actually setting the terms of bidding before uh, the bidding actually took place, and so they they would sometimes lose on purpose. They would sometimes nominate a firm that was unknown, and therefore it would it would look like a fair competition. But there was nothing fair about it. the The second aspect that I think is really uh, very interesting is the political aspect. Brazil has a huge number of parties. Uh, the last election, thirty parties were elected to the lower house of the chamber, known as the Chamber of Deputies, the lower house of Congress. And um, this, c- it's very, it's very hard for any president to actually govern because there are so many parties because there's such fragmentation.
0: Yeah, how do you get a coalition? With that's okay.
1: Right. So you know, just to give you an example, under under the PT, the Workers Party, the Partido dos Trabalhadores, the PT. Uh, the president never had more than around 18% of the seats in the lower house. So how do you get to 50%? How do you get to a supermajority if you need to do constitutional reform? Right. Um, and one of the ways that um, presidents apparently were doing this was through bribes. Mm-hmm. And so what what uh, Paulo Roberto Costa uh, as the first among many plea bargaining witnesses demonstrated was that nominees to become executives within petrobras were actually nominated by godfathers political mm-hmm. godfathers from uh the major political parties and then in exchange for that that nomination they would uh kick back very significant funds through the construction firms. So you had this collusion between three major actors. You had the the executives in in Petrobras, you had coalition members within the political system, and then uh, businesses, uh, construction firms specifically.
0: So talking about um, Lava Jato and its sort of far-reaching ramifications in Brazil, the former president, Dilma Rousseff, was impeached in 2016, and those those things are tied together, right? I mean, her impeachment was directly tied to Operation Car Wash. It's
1: it's you, that's a million dollar question. I think that the the answer is going to be a little bit academic, but I, I I think it is important for us to distinguish the the various causes of of the impeachment. So far before we get to the corruption investigation, it's important to recognize that Dilma Rousseff was chosen, sort of handpicked by President Lula. Mm-hmm he left office to be his successor by all accounts Dilma Rousseff was uh, fairly hard charging, um, a little bit authoritarian in her treatment of, of politicians, certainly uh, very direct. that really hurt her political support in in Congress the The second problem though was that Dilma Rousseff Beginning in 2013, there were these uh, massive street protests. Mm-hmm. It's these uh, The protests arose for a variety of different reasons. They started out as protests that were very local to Sao Paulo, the state of Sao Paulo, and particularly to the city of Sao Paulo, protests about bus fares. Uh, at that point, the protests, which were taking place over days and then weeks and then indeed months, um, the protests turned more to public services mm-hmm. and to corruption. Um, there were there were two proximate events that I think were also important to the protests: the the World Cup and the Olympics, which were happening in 2014 and 2016. Um, and Brazilians, I think, were understandably quite frustrated with lackluster public services on the one hand, mm-hmm. and the fact that FIFA, the the World Uh, Soccer Federation was getting uh, support for public support for stadium construction that really looked uh, in many cases like white elephant construction, you Uh. know, projects that that would not be used again in the future and that were uh, really just benefiting uh, FIFA. Um, And then you know, as I mentioned at the outset, there was another factor. Beginning uh, in about 2012, having having survived and actually thrived during the global financial mm-hmm. crisis, Brazil's growth began to peter out. So Brazil grew in, in 2010 when Dilma was running for her first term. Brazil was growing at 7.5%, which is out of this world for Brazil, um, and that's a, a growth rate that's unparalleled in the history of, of this current uh, democratic regime. Um, by the time she ran for re-election in 2014, growth was essentially uh, zero, and there was a fiscal crisis uh, that was so significant that um, uh, Even the opposition candidate was saying, we're going to have to do something about this. You know, there wasn't as much clarity at the time of her re-election about the corruption scandal as we might think now, Mm -hmm. you know, without looking kind of carefully at the timetable. On the other hand, there was a lot of suspicion about corruption, and there was a lot of disgust with overspending on these massive sporting events.
0: Okay, The current president, Jair Bolsonaro, promised to fight corruption during his campaign. Do you think his election was a result of Operation Car Wash or an electorate increasingly concerned with corruption, or were other forces at play in the electorate to elect him?
1: Yeah, you know, I think that there's an awful lot of oversimplification of Bolsonaro's rise. Um, We forget that uh, after Dilma's impeachment... Her ally, her one-time ally, uh, Michelle Temer, became president. And so during his two years in office, Temer was actually caught up in the corruption scandal. Mm-hmm. Twice Congress voted not to allow him to be indicted and charged, um, but uh, he was living on the razor's edge, I think it's, it's safe to say. So Bolsonaro's rise comes about in that situation mm-hmm. where Uh, not only do you have the car wash investigation going on, but you also have a a sitting president uh, who is deeply implicated in a corruption scandal, the removal of another president, Dilma Rousseff, who had been impeached, um, even though she was not known to be personally culpable Mm -hmm. or not personally corrupt. but it, I think it's hard to say that Bolsonaro was elected because of corruption. Certainly, corruption played a part, the recession played a part. But a, a famous uh, Brazilian columnist said it doesn't take a little bit of bad luck to elect Bolsonaro, it takes a lot of bad luck to elect Bolsonaro. And so there were a lot of uh, sort of um, events that, that accumulated slowly over time to add up to Bolsonaro's election. Among these events, he was stabbed um, in an apparent assassination attempt. This enabled him to sit out the debates. Bolsonaro uh, has always been, he's been in Congress, before being elected, he was in Congress for 30 years. Mm -hmm. He was a a sort of unknown backbencher, not particularly uh, well-regarded, not particularly productive in terms of producing legislation. So to have... Bolsonaro suddenly rise to the forefront, you needed a lot of bad luck. And so the stabbing helped. Um, I think the corruption scandal helped. The economic situation helped. And then uh, the PT actually helped in its own way.
0: Matthew Taylor, it's time to take five. This is when you, our guest, get to daydream out loud and reorder the world as you'd like it to be by single-handedly instituting five policies or practices that could change the world for the better. Specifically, what are the top five lessons that other countries interested in fighting corruption can learn from Operation Car Wash?
1: All right. Well, I I think the first one is that fighting money laundering is Essential to undermining corruption networks, we saw in Car Wash. It all began with an investigation of a car wash, Mm -hmm. Um, and going after that money and the trails uh, is is essential. Uh, The second, though, is international, and I think uh, Car Wash demonstrated that even when Brazilian institutions were working really, really hard, they just gained uh, wind at their back as soon as other Governments cooperated in fighting uh, money laundering, offshore banking, and uh, the scandal itself. Third, um, Brazil, I think, demonstrates without a doubt that cooperation across agencies uh, is essential to getting to the bottom of corruption. And for many years, most institutions, most agencies in Brazil were not cooperating. Uh, Over time, they gradually recognized this and started to build networks where personal ties between members of different agencies uh, were essential to sharing information, um, sharing tactics, uh, and developing strategies. Fourth, uh, I don't think Car Wash would have succeeded if it weren't for public support. If you don't have public support, it's really easy for politicians to fight back, to push back, to do everything possible to undermine the, the uh, investigation. And then finally, um, I think that the, less, the biggest lesson I take away is that there are no shortcuts. Mm-hmm. In fighting corruption, there, there are no big bangs. You have to go step by step incremental progress is probably more productive over the long haul than trying to resolve everything in one single uh, investigation one single fell swoop uh, improving institutions is a really long process
0: so you don't fight corruption without political will popular support and a dedicated civil service that actually can can affect these types of changes it's... you said it better than I could oh, okay awesome all right thanks very much. Matthew, I want to circle back to that Latino barometro report that I mentioned at the beginning, uh, surveying opinions about Latin American democracy. So in Brazil, only 7% of people surveyed said that government was interested in everyone's well-being. I don't necessarily think that people's perceptions of government corruption are tied directly to whether or not they think government is working for them. I think it, it matters more where the corruption is and whether or not it's obviously harming their everyday lives or, the, or they think it is it can affect their their faith in government and um, their overall trust in whether or not government cares about them how does corruption affect average Brazilians
1: uh, it's a it's a great question I I mean I think that that your question actually uh, points to one of the problems which is that Brazilians like people everywhere um, are often wildly over optimistic about what would happen if we got rid of corruption? (laughs) That is, um, you know, we tend to overweigh how much money is drained away by corruption. Waste,
0: fraud, and abuse. Waste, Waste, fraud, fraud, and abuse. abuse. (laughs) That's right.
1: And so, um, you know, I'm the first to say we should fight corruption. But um, the, the problems, I think, of governance in Brazil are not driven... It, you know, the, the amount of money that corruption sucks up is significant, but it doesn't account for lackluster public services. It is not sufficient to explain why public services are as bad as they are. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, though, that corruption is also often an umbrella term that we use to cover a lot of different other issues. And in in the demonstrations in Brazil and in the election, a lot of times when you were hearing corruption, you were hearing an abusive civil service, an abusive public sector. Uh, Brazil doesn't have a particularly large civil service. It's Mm -hmm. about on, on par with the rest of Latin America, and, and Latin America itself doesn't have particularly large civil services. But Brazil has an extraordinarily expensive civil service. And so this is um, one political scientist, Barry Ames, has, has famously said, uh, the state in Brazil serves itself. Mm. And I think that that's a perception that gets sometimes caught up in perceptions of corruption. So uh, when Brazilians, as they increasingly did over the past half decade, say corruption is our number one problem, um, I think that they're talking about corruption per se, but they're often also talking about these broader problems of an inefficient state that is not achieving the goals that it was designed to achieve.
0: So we, I mentioned at the beginning and this report about people's thoughts about democracy in Latin America and how there was this move in the 80s toward democratization. Have these corruption scandals had a deleterious effect on the reputation of democracy in Brazil among its citizens? Do you think that people are blaming democracy and saying if we had a more authoritarian type of government, we wouldn't have this? Are they Is any of that happening?
1: I think one of the hopeful things that comes out of uh, surveys on democracy is precisely that the regime, the democratic regime, is not really in question. Mm-hmm. Um, and there there doesn't seem, polls don't show support for authoritarian uh, responses. I will, though, say that there are problems. Bolsonaro's appeal, for example, is in some ways a mano duro appeal that he, he promises more security, less corruption. I'll, I'll get rid of the, as he likes to say, vagabundos, the, the vagabonds, the, the criminals, the the thugs that are out there. There are people who are attracted to Bolsonaro because of this conservative, tough, supposed rule of law mm-hmm. approach. But so far, what we've seen is that Brazilian institutions and the electorate more broadly, I think, are are pushing back against some of the hardest core of his supporters. This is, I think, um, going to be a difficult, a difficult struggle for Brazil. Partly because Brazil became so polarized between the left, represented by the Workers Party, and the center and center right, mm-hmm. and um, uh, this makes it hard to find nuanced solutions to some of the bigger problems like. Um, Police violence, uh, criminal gangs, um, you know, poverty in the cities, and, and you know, all of these social issues. Um, right now, there's sort of a black and white separation, and oftentimes. Uh, it seems like Brazilians are forced into a binary choice between the tough on crime side, even if they don 't agree with all facets of bolsonaro 's mm-hmm. approach and the more the the emphasis on social equity, which was the hallmark of the workers' party, even if Brazilians don 't agree with all aspects of that approach mm-hmm. and so um this this polarization is extreme. And um, I, I think that um, there, the next election will be an interesting one to see if that black and white binary polar opposition can be broken into into a more effective uh, form of political representation.
0: How do you think Bolsonaro fits or doesn't fit into the trend of countries electing right-wing nationalist leaders and you could include President Trump in that category some of the leaders in in Europe that have sprung up over the last few years is he part of a trend
1: I I'd like to think not but I think probably Yeah <laughs> um you know I think Bolsonaro is an interesting uh he 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 fits the mold in some ways um, one way that he fits the mold is his total, um, disregard and, um, disgust with conventional media, uh, his willingness to turn to Twitter, his willingness to break the norms of common convention and how we should treat opponents, how we should treat the press, how we should treat criticism. You know, these are, these are, I think more calculated than they appear mm-hmm. on the face of it. We tend to interpret these actions as simply uh, the expressions of somebody who is unhinged at some level. But you know, more and more, the more he repeats this kind of aggressive action, it seems calculated to mm-hmm. offend in ways that actually build support among a certain parcel of the par- population. And um, I, I don't think we have to look too far to to see other parallels in, in world politics. Uh, on the other hand, though, Bolsonaro really does represent some very Brazilian conservative faction. Uh, the other aspect is his uh, appeal to evangelicals and neo-pentecostals. Uh and so this is I think uh, a little bit different from the United States right now although there are are some parallels but uh Bolsonaro has he's married to an evangelical and he um has has done a lot of outreach to the religious right mm-hmm. in Brazil. Last question.
0: What do you love about Brazil?
1: What do I love about Brazil? Well, I was in Brazil uh this past year and um you know, despite everything that's going on, there's no better place to just have a wonderful conversation with people who, no matter how dire the situation is, are willing to laugh about it. Mm-hmm. Brazilians are wonderful at poking fun of the situation that they're in, of their own country, but but at the end of the day, you get to laugh with them, and I love that.
0: <laughs> Thank you for joining Big World to discuss politics and corruption in Brazil. Matthew Taylor, it's been great to speak with you. Thank you. Big World is a production of the School of International Service at American University. Our theme music is It Was Just Cold by Andrew Codeman. Until next time.